episode 169, Trust Plus Engagement Equals Employers Driving Patient Outcomes. Today, I speak with Darren White, DC, founder and CEO of Aduro. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Dr. Darren White and I begin our conversation by covering the basics. What do employers have to do with healthcare? So if you're new to this, you'll have the opportunity to catch up. From there, however, we leap into the ways employers are attempting to control spiraling healthcare costs and raise poor outcomes that might be resulting from all that spend. And we talk about the growing tension between employer on-site clinics who actually are starting to compete with local provider organizations and actively strive to achieve network leakage, for example. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Darren. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about employers and healthcare today. It's not necessarily intuitive that employers and healthcare are so intertwined. But why don't you discuss how that happens and the way of it? Yeah, it's completely not intuitive and certainly took me by surprise when I kind of discovered this space. But largely, employers are faced with this sort of escalating third or fourth largest expense on their profit and loss, which is health costs. And they largely don't have a lot of tools in their pocket to help you know, mitigate that escalating cost, which can be anywhere from 3 to 40% annually. And then when you just look at our healthcare market in general, it's a three-plus trillion dollar industry, 18% of GDP, but our outcomes still rank us somewhere between 19 or 20 on the list of developed nations. And so you have this escalating cost internally, and you have this external sort of failure, if you will, of healthcare trying to solve this. And so employers are now kind of forced to say, okay, maybe we should take this on a little bit and see if we can do somewhat of a better job internally at some things that, you know, some low-hanging fruit and maybe just pass on the more critical stuff to the healthcare system. So I believe that's where it started. They just had to get into the equation because they just couldn't manage this escalating expense. The stakeholder who bears the cost is, generally speaking, the one who's going to step up and try to solve the problem. So right. What are the different ways then that employers are stepping up and trying to ameliorate or address or control the breaks in the healthcare system they might be seeing and being affected by? Most large employers, they go to this strategy called self-insured. So they're more now in control of, you know, one of their employees goes to the doctor, the employer is actually literally paying that claim. Now they leverage insurance companies to actually perform that service for them but they're not using the insurance company's money per se to pay for healthcare. So now the employer has the this awesome opportunity to a depending on the level they want to intervene at, but at the first level now it's about providing a more if 
efficient access to healthcare and maybe driving people to different access points, like rather than going to the ER for a migraine, maybe we get you to urgent care or a nurse line. So they have more leverage in that scenario. Also, since they're bearing the risk and paying when the employee goes to the doctor, they now have an opportunity to affect the well-being of that person more upstream you know, well-being strategies than, and have people have healthier behaviors, then suddenly maybe they don't show up at the doctor as much. They have less ER visits. They're dealing with less chronic conditions, which is really what drives healthcare costs. And so they just have these two new levers they can now pull. One, access to care, and two, more upstream preventing the issues before we actually get there. And do you see that an employer as a payer has different priorities than maybe an insurance company, commercial insurance company as a payer. And what I mean by that is commercial insurance companies tend to be very focused on disease categories or treating things maybe that are either going to reduce costs or meet some quality metric. Very focused on, generally speaking, I mean, obviously others as well, but those are the two biggies. Do you see that an employer might be more concerned about quality of life type issues or things that might prevent someone from coming to work that might not necessarily result in some kind of medical cost offset or some cost savings. It's just improving someone's life. It's exactly right. When the insurance company is the payer, the main thing they're working on is chronic disease, right? They're stratifying the population. They're focusing on the high-cost claimants And they're helping them through care management, coordinated care, or case management, just manage the actual uh, case. Whereas when the employer becomes the payer, they know very quickly that if you're spending a million dollars on healthcare costs, the actual cost of loss of productivity via absenteeism, presenteeism, turnover, burnout is two to four times the actual healthcare costs. So by them focusing more upstream on things like wellness, well-being, quality of life, work-life balance, some of the things you mentioned, they're now affecting a much larger opportunity cost than, say, the insurer would. And I'm also thinking about things like, I don't know, migraines or irritable bowel syndrome or things that might not result in higher medical costs, but definitely, so your average commercial insurer would be like, oh, that's going to be prior auth, and that's going to be, have the highest tier copay, and we have rebates contracts in place, so we're going to make it a seven step to get over here, that an employer might be starting to look into those types of conditions as cost drivers and really focus on ensuring that access to evidence-based or care in some cases is well met. Yeah, exactly. They have an opportunity to actually, and there's plenty of examples out there where they, again, they begin to take on parts of the health system that are inefficient. And so things like lifestyle uh, opportunities that you mentioned, like migraines or irritable bowel syndrome, I mean, a lot of these can be helped with a health coach where you can learn healthy behaviors and triggers that trigger migraines or diets that, you know, may help with inflammation on IBS. And then when needed, the appropriate care is intervened. And sometimes that just has to be managed through primary care, but it's better than managing it through primary care than ER during a flare-up. 
the employer now has this awesome opportunity to educate people. And there's a big concept called consumerism where we're just helping at the, like the employers are now saying, hey, no one really taught people how to purchase healthcare. Like that's not a class in school. You don't really know what to do. Navigating the health system is daunting and there's many access points. So why don't we help people with some of the more lower hanging fruit, lifestyle related stuff them resources and then point them in the right direction when care is needed. And even when care is needed, they can leverage pricing transparency tools, for example, uh, where they help them to be a better shopper. So they'll know exactly how much their copay is going to be, how good that surgeon is. And they just become a better spender of their dollars that is coming from their employer than they would otherwise be spending the dollars of the insurance company, where to them it's just free. And, I, you know, why wouldn't I just go to the ER? So speaking of the ER, you mentioned helping employees find a more appropriate care setting is one of the ways that employers are starting to step up. How are employers actually facilitating that? Are they saying, don't go to the ER, go to this urgent care? Or are they actually opening up urgent care facilities themselves? probably a whole hour on this. Uh, um, they're doing a lot of things. Number one, an easy thing to do is just plan design. That just means that we are placing different values on different access points. The ER is a great example. If you go to the ER because of a migraine, you know, you might have a copay that is, you know, maybe a thousand dollars or the copay to urgent care is 20 bucks. And so now you're incentivizing that person to make a better decision about where to go because they're like, oh, that's out of my pocket. It's $1,000 there. It's 20 bucks here. I'm going to go to urgent care. And then on the health plan side, right, the company saves money because they went to urgent care, which is actually more appropriate than bothering uh, an ER doc. And so that's, that's one strategy. The second strategy is through on-site clinics. And this is very popular right now where companies are actually either outsourcing or just hiring direct providers to create an on-site clinic setting, which I would put in the category of convenience care, right? Runny nose, sniffles, maybe headaches, and you just run downstairs, annual tests, physicals, stuff like that. You just run downstairs in the company, have that visit completed, and you're saving a lot of money. And the person doesn't have travel. Like oftentimes for doctors, let's say I've taken the whole day off. Or, you know, they could literally go down for lunch to the cafeteria. Next to the cafeteria is the convenience center. And now they're eating lunch. They go to the convenience center for 20 minutes. They had work all the way till noon, and they have work all the way the rest of the day. And so the company saves, again, on both sides of the equation. They save on the healthcare costs and then on the productivity side as well. And then also once they're in that convenience setting, that team are better trained to route people and help them navigate through more complex area of specialty if they need to move on in their care continuum. Does the pharmacist have a play here? That's an interesting question because as we begin to work with more, so we're working with this very large retailer in the Midwest that has a very large pharmacy piece of their business. And the quote that still sticks in my mind is uh, they believe, and I think they might be rightly so here, that the pharmacist is actually the most overqualified and underused healthcare provider in the entire ecosystem. The strategy for the pharmacist now is to begin to take on more of a role, being the very first point of contact and broadening the conversation from beyond just the medication fulfillment to more lifestyle components and being a better, playing a bigger and better role in their overall healthcare. They can actually sell that service to the employer 
And uh, so it's sort of an interesting play there where, again, another opportunity to expand the role of this provider to mitigate, you know, overall healthcare costs by better navigating that employee. What does this mean to local provider organizations? And this is the circumstance that I'm thinking about. There's an on-site clinic. And as we all know, it is often the mission of a integrated delivery network to avoid network leakage, <laughs> you know, to, right. to keep people within the network. So I could see that there is kind of an inherent conflict between on-site clinics and then local provider organizations. How does that play out? It's definitely challenging health systems to create new strategies to mitigate the employer taking this on. So it's a, it's a really good tension because we need the health systems to kind of step up and do a better job. And by the employers literally competing with health systems now, we are seeing both sides ratcheted up. And so the way they're responding to that is they're leveraging well-being projects or some of the things that the strategies the employers are doing. They're actually either reselling vendors or creating these strategies themselves and then selling them to employers. And so just speaking from personal experience here, as we work with employers, we also work with health systems that say, hey, you're doing such a good job with the employer. We would love to wrap you up in a little bow and we want to sell you to other employers and basically commercialize this opportunity back to the employer, then they get kind of two revenue streams, right? They're getting the revenue stream by providing the service, and then they get the downstream revenue of when when things do happen, they keep them in the network. And so because they already have that relationship with them upstream on things that they would never have had. So it becomes a great marketing strategy, actually, for the health system because average cost of a you know acquisition of a patient is probably 20 or 30 times higher through typical marketing streams versus the employer paying a couple bucks to the health system to have them manage upstream lifestyle, consumerism, educational stuff, and build that relationship earlier. That arrangement that you just mentioned, is that kind of a PMPM, a per member per month sort of thing? If an employee takes a, chooses to take advantage of that whatever program, is it something that it's understood that the employee will go to that health system to get the care and it's somehow risk-based or is it still FFS or how does that work? It could be two different ways, generally speaking. There's many ways, but just limited to two here. One is it's literally the same strategy the employer's doing. It's education and it's pointing them back to the health system, but you're right, that the, there's no contract involved. The employee is free to go where they like, choose their own provider as normal, but, but the, they're banking on the fact that they have a relationship and you tend to go where you where you trust. And so they have a brand and they have trust and then they go to that health system. To tighten that up even further, the second strategy would be to apply network contract to that or an ACO type setting where you bundle up a healthcare team out of your health system and you sell the services of that specific network or that team to the company in a risk-based contract. Typically, let's just give an example of a capitated fee. So we're going to charge you, Mr. Employer, Mrs. Employer, X amount per employee per month, no matter what happens. If we're dealing with migraines or cancer, it doesn't matter. We're going to go at risk. And the employer loves that because now the health system and the providers 
are actually incentivized to keep people out of the health system in some way. So by keeping them healthier, much like a gym works. I mean, if everybody showed at the gym, I mean, the gym would would fall apart. Uh, (laughs) They just couldn't handle all those people. And so the same thing here, it just changes it where the health system's now not trying to fill beds. They're actually trying to empty them. And that plays into moving more upstream and helping people prevent claims versus uh, manage claims, which is what they've been doing forever. And so it flips that whole equation. And so that's you're seeing those types of arrangements happen now. And I know one of the things that many employers struggle with is that they put these plans, opportunities like that in place. It could be such a benefit to a patient. And we can talk about other patient benefits in a sec. But obviously not falling victim to something that could be preventable is a huge plus for a patient. But oftentimes, despite putting programs like this in place and their, the value of these programs being readily available, employees don't know about them or they choose not to take advantage of them or there's some communication gap there. How difficult of an issue is this in your experience? And then what do you see employers doing? Like, what's the way to solve this? Yeah, you're touching on a great challenge. As we've been talking about this opportunity for the employer to take a greater role in the individual's healthcare, you you are faced with two sort of immediate challenges. Number one is actually trust. And so typically, if you were to survey a number of employees, they're going to rank sharing their healthcare or having their employer intervene in their healthcare. They're going to rank that pretty low on the trust scale. They are somewhat skeptical. They're worried they're going to get fired. They're worried they might be treated differently. And so there's an, an inherent fear you're going to you, the employer has to overcome, and then the and that drives the second problem, which is engagement. And so the way that you have to find a way to engage folks into this in a in a nice way, where they you earn the trust number one, and you actually provide a better outcome than they would otherwise find elsewhere. And so inside of engagement, I would just say typically for 30 years. And this is why our company, you know, Aduro exists, is to kind of rebrand this opportunity. But typically what what the employer does by mistake is they say, okay, we're going to go find the people that aren't well. We're going to pay them or incentivize them to fill out surveys. And this is how they get that upfront engagement. And so we're going to have you fill out an HRA, a health risk assessment. Then we're going to maybe have you do some biometric screenings or health screenings. And so, and then, and if you do that for us, then we're going to pay you anywhere from 50 to $800 just to do those things. So now we have the data, we have the initial engagement, but then where, where it drops off for the employer and where they've made the mistake is then they begin to treat them like a liability or a risk for the company. And they're like, oh, we fa- thanks for taking this thing and here's your money. But oh, by the way, we found that you're, you're actually struggling with obesity and you're probably going to be a type 2 diabetic in three years. So like we have this program we want you to do. And now you're actually eroding even more trust. You're not treating that person like an asset, which they truly are to the company. And you get this kind of spiraling uh, effect. Largely over the last 30 years, our industry hasn't made a ton of gain in building that trust back. And I think the opportunity is to elevate that conversation with the employee, decrease like paying people to do antagonistic things, 
and tap into more aspirational and intrinsic things that people naturally want to work on is a better relationship to set up than this antagonistic thing. So no surveys, is that what you're saying? You, you kind of throw out the opportunity and then let someone step up? We like to say, raise your hand. Like our favorite people to work with are people that raise their hand, right? Rather than have been forced to do something. So I wouldn't say throw out the survey. I would say maybe rethink the survey. For example, right now, a typical health risk assessment would be, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you speed? Do you wear your seatbelt? Have you been to the doctor? Have you been told you got high cholesterol? It's not a really fun thing to take. And it just, and then it's, it's usually, you know, 15 minutes and it's one point in time. Okay, let's, let's throw that out and maybe we should say, hey, we're going to pulse our employee base maybe one question a week throughout the entire year. And we're going to broaden the questions and maybe we'll pepper in some risk questions, but we're going to ask them like, do you feel supported by your manager? Do you feel like the company is connected to a good social mission? Do you feel like, you know, you're having a good one-on-one? Do you feel like the, your company cares about you? How happy are you at work? And so you broaden the question base, make it more intrinsically interesting, uh, and then you pulse people over a long people of time. And then, you know, you basically get more trust, better data, and it's trended. You could begin to repeat questions and you could actually get a trend. I think that's a more, I don't know, we call it human performance, but that's a better way of engaging somebody than this forced, weird, long, antagonistic, you know, survey. And do you feel like this done well so that we engage an employee, they take us up on the opportunity to participate in some sort of course or education or treatment paradigm. Do you feel like that's something that employees, that they really appreciate? Like, is there a recognition after the fact that something was done that they place value on? I'm just going to give you a data point to start here. Here's how we know we're doing a good job with a population. Right now, 51% of participants that we work with, with employers, are engaging in activities that are not health-related. What happens is you build a relationship around maybe leadership and growth and development, which, you know, out of the Deloitte report is one of the things, top things employees care about right now. Or maybe you engage them on something like diversity and inclusion, or maybe you work with them on a financial issue. And so it's kind of a different angle in where they've raised their hand. They've worked on, say, budgeting. Now they have $2,000, which most Americans don't even have $2,000 for an emergency. Now they've done that. They've ticked that box. And they feel better. And they're like, I want to tackle something else. And then they actually get into maybe a weight management program. And the satisfaction rate of that care path is 60 to 70% better than if we had reached out and told them they had a problem with weight and then tried to engage them. So that we, we measure this by satisfaction. We're always asking, you know, was this helpful? And on a scale of one to five, you know, how, how was your experience? The, the recognition inside of this back to the employer is, is enormous. And it actually begins to filter into the stories that they tell where they're like, I had this crazy thing happen in my life and my employer was there for me. They cared about me. I can't even imagine leaving this company. And the recognition ends up being best place to work. And is that the major advantage to an employer or is there cost repercussions or cost reduction repercussions? I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, 
the toughest conversation ever is ROI. <laughs> How do you measure this? Because you have this range of ROI. You have, okay, I'm a diabetic and I manage my diabetes in the ER. You know, that costs $5,000 a year. We can see it in the claims data. It's very hard data. We know what it is. And then next year, your employer says, hey, we're giving health coaches to all our diabetics. And suddenly they're managing it with their health coach. And now it goes from $5,000 a year down to, you know, $800 a year, massive savings, very hard ROI, no problem. And you can repeat that for COPD and heart disease, and you just go on. Then you have this other category of kind of softer costs where you would say, hey, you've got one or two risk factors. You're a year away from being a, a diabetic and you're a year away from costing us. Uh, so this is kind of the cost avoidance category. And inside that category, very easy for a CFO to say, hey, it may not even happen on our watch. Uh, we have a year and a half turnover rate. So it's likely that that's the next employer's problem, not ours. So we're not going to invest in it. So those are more softer. And then, uh, and then where we really like to play is what's called value on investment. So it's a, it's a healthy blend of, hey, we want to mitigate some of these hardcore tobacco and easy things to get ROI on. We want to acknowledge and at least report on these softer costs. But really what we care about more than anything is attaining and retaining employees. We want to be an employer of choice and we want to be a best place to work because we know right now that talent is one of our largest things that we want to uh, manage. And so by doing all these other things, yes, they have some ROI, but I think really the employers that are doing this best are the, the reward at the end of the day is being employer of choice and providing the best environment for that employee to grow personally, professionally, and feel supported in their life. The term for this is kind of an engaged employee where they're living their life full of purpose and commitment around the, the company's mission as well. What advice would you give to a self-insured employer in this case? Let me just ask you this first. What percentage of employers do you feel like, I'm, I'm trying to picture the bell curve, what, yep. what percentage of employers do you feel like are recognizing all the things that you just were talking about and are actively addressing? What percentage? It's pretty high. So they're just not doing it as well as they could. 80% of the Fortune 500, are they have some sort of well-being program in place. All the way from the left side, which is kind of the check the box, hey, by the way, we have this benefit, to the right side where they truly are trying to be an employer of choice and truly care about the culture and engagement levels of their employees through things like well-being strategies. I would say there's a high, you know, it's 80%. The challenge is inside that 80% and on that continuum, they're still doing the same thing the healthcare system is doing. And so they're still kind of doomed to fail. In fact, they may even begin to write it off because they're getting similar results. And so the advice here is, you know, specifically don't treat people like a liability or a risk. Treat them as an asset and a whole person. Earn their trust in this environment. Broaden it away from just cholesterol. You actually get an engaged employee. That's the specific advice if you're going down this path. There are hundreds of vendors out there that all they do is just identify, stratify, and do these weird outbound calls at 5 o'clock at night and tell you you're a smoker and you have to do this thing or you're going to have a surcharge. Like Nobody wants to be talked to that way. And so you just create this antagonistic hoop-jumping exercise that's invest in our people. They are our greatest asset. And do you feel like the employers who are doing the aforementioned, 
doing exactly the wrong things as, as per what you just said. Do you feel like they're doing it just because they're like just trying to check a box and they don't really believe in it? So they're just trying to do it as fast and efficiently as possible so that they can tell the board that, yeah, yeah, we have that in place. There's some check the boxers for sure. But at the end of the day, you still have this weird thing on the balance sheet that is out of control. So the CFO at some point wants to, even if you are checking the box, over time, like if it's not changing anything, someone's going to want to question it or get rid of it. The checking the box doesn't typically last very long. The problem I think we have is we have a vendor landscape and even a consultant landscape that largely has set up just this antagonistic model. And we're seeing this change a lot, especially in the last three to five years, where what's going into digital health right now is crazy. You know, we're just seeing record numbers of, of venture capital just pouring into digital health and digital health are running to employers. And so now the employers are, are actually getting into this, the good side of this equation. I see the problem will shift really quickly as the consultants catch on better and as uh, our vendor landscape matures and consolidates. I think we're we're going to end up in this place. It's just natural. Yeah, that's interesting. So if health tech or certain suppliers go direct to employers, and if I was an employer, and I am an employer, <laughs> I would say, right. why didn't you bring me this consultant? So it's almost like... It's interesting tension right now. I, I, it's very interesting because the consultants almost can't keep up with it right now. And digital health startups, they're not dumb. The sales cycle and the engagement opportunity is quicker at the employer than it is at the health system. You know, health systems are notorious for long drug out sales cycles, pilots that keep going on forever and decisions that are very slow, whereas employers are like, hey, we got a quarter to manage to. And so you're just seeing the go to market strategy of digital health <laughs> is not the health system. It's actually it's actually the employer. So it's, it's very, very fun to watch. So, so talk a little bit about Aduro and what you are up to over there. My background's been in health promotion, health prevention, and human performance ever since I got out of college and opened wellness centers. And so I knew very quickly and very clearly that I wanted to work on that side of the equation. And then as we were working on that side of the equation, we realized that most of this stuff can, that shows up in our offices, 80% of it could be prevented upstream. And the most logical upstream place was the employer. We launched Aduro inside this space of like wellness, if you will, companies. And we just decided to up-level the conversation to human performance, where we truly engage people where they're at for the things they need. We earn their trust over time. And then, you know, a benefit or a side effect of that is we get the opportunity to manage more complex problems when they need it because they asked us to rather than we told them to. By broadening this story away from health and fitness and including things like money and prosperity and leadership and development and contribution sustainability, mindfulness and resilience, uh, we can uh, engage people on a wider range of topics, help them be great at anything, and ultimately, we can help them manage their way through more complex stuff later on, giving massive savings to the company and a big uplift in culture and employee engagement. You're separating yourself then from some of the more traditional wellness-type programs, which kind of have been getting beat up lately. Yeah, yeah, uh, they should be. And it's uh, just a terrible way to treat people. 
we've just seen, again, satisfaction rates. And, and, and number one refer into weight loss programs now is actually finance. So our coaches can now kind of cross-sell a little bit. That's not really a great word these days, but they can begin to refer or better coordinate people because we're operating on the same person uh, with many different types of coaches. It's a much more interesting conversation for the employer and the end user and both win. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Darren. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.